This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. As we're seeing the importance of women's leadership, both in the economic sector and in the political sphere, that it's a good time to recommit ourselves to persist in making progress in those areas. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has hit women much harder than men. The Bureau of Labor Statistics said that women held more than half of the jobs lost back in April. I hosted a panel discussion about this issue as part of the Smart Women, Smart Power Speaker Series. This series is sponsored by City. Jennifer Klein is Chief Policy and Strategy Officer at Time's Up and develops and directs Time's Up strategy and advocacy across public policy, private sector, and culture change work. She has also served as a consultant to nonprofits and foundations on domestic and global women's issues and has taught at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, Yale Law School, and the Georgetown University Law Center. Rakeen Maboud is Director of Research and Strategy at Time's Up, and she's responsible for the development of a strategic research agenda at Time's Up. She is an expert on the 21st century workplace and the way in which policy choices intersect with gender and race, as well as social and economic inequalities. She was previously at the Roosevelt Institute, where she was a fellow and program director of the 21st Century Economic and Economic Inclusion Programs. Rachel Vogelstein is the Douglas Dillon Senior Fellow and Director of the Women and Foreign Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a gender, a professor of gender and U.S. foreign policy at Georgetown Law School. She has worked to elevate the status of women and girls domestically and globally, and she previously served on the White House Council on Women and Girls and as a top official in the Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department. At CFR, her research focused on the relationship between women's advancement and prosperity, stability, and security. So Jen, Rakeen, and Rachel, thank you all so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. And Jen, I want to start with you by asking about uh, Time's Up's focus on COVID's impact on women that you've been working on since this pandemic began. Uh, what have you been focusing on and why is it that COVID-19 is is impacting women so much more than, than men. Thank you, Bev. Thanks to you and to CSIS. And I also want to say a special thanks to City for hosting. And the part of my bio that you didn't mention was that I have been a City client since 1990. So I'm particularly grateful uh, to City personally as well as professionally. Um, so as you know, Time's Up was founded when the hashtag MeToo broke into the published con consciousness in 2017, when Alyssa Milano tweeted, if you've ever been sexually harassed or assaulted, reply MeToo. And of course, that hashtag had actually been created a full decade earlier by Tarana Burke, who's an activist still working for the rights of Black women and Black girls. Um, so at first, Time's Up, in this moment of great response, was really an organic group of women, first in Hollywood and then quickly beyond Hollywood to other industries and around the world, meeting to figure out how to address sexual harassment and assault in their own lives. 
within even the first weeks of, of the, this sort of organic set of meetings, farm workers reached out to the actresses in Hollywood to let them know that they had long experienced sexual harassment really in the shadows in their own work and offering their support and their expertise, um, which really became the model for Time's Up. It's a partnership among women of all sorts in all sorts of jobs from farm work, domestic work, restaurant work, um, and, and in all of our diversity. And over the course of the last two years, Time's Up has become an organization. So from that organic group, um, we are now an actual nonprofit working on the issues of uh, safe, fair, and dignified work. Um, and I just always want to start by saying, which is relevant to the work we're doing now on COVID, um, is that we had three guiding principles in mind from the outset. First is that sexual harassment is both a cause and a result of a power imbalance at work. So if you want to address it, you need to address that power imbalance. So our vision, the vision for our organization is safe, fair, and dignified work. And while we work on preventing sexual harassment and protecting workers when it happens, we also work on, on stopping all forms of discrimination and on ensuring equal opportunity for all workers. Um, and that means working on a range of other issues, including equal pay, caregiving, and a range of economic issues that have historically prevented women, particularly low-paid women and women of color, from having that op equal opportunity at work. Second, we think of our work in an intersectional way for the obvious reason that, women's, that humans aren't one thing. We all have overlapping identities and those identities may bring overlapping discrimination or oppression. And that is core to the work that Time's Up does. And third, while law and policy matter, and I'm a lawyer myself by training, and it's what I've spent the majority of my career working on, so do the private actions of companies and other organizations, and so do the social norms and culture we live in. Um, and you know, norms can change. Um, we've seen that in, um, in recent weeks, um, really over almost what feels like a, an, an, an opening or, um, or a change on people's perceptions of Black Lives Matter. We saw that in spades um, when uh, the LGBTQ plus community um, brought forward the issue of same-sex marriage and within a decade, the, the um, norms changed um, in terms of public support for same-sex marriage, but that's the hardest piece. So we also really try to squarely focus on that culture shift. Um, so how has our work changed during COVID-19? What we've all seen and lived in the last few months is both the health and the economic aspects of this crisis. Um, and that has really only magnified and exacerbated the gender and racial equality that has long been built into our health and economic systems. So we've been long dedicated and we'll talk a lot more I know today about ending both uh, structural gender and racial barriers. And this work is even more timely and more urgent right now. Um, so what we've been doing is, uh, you know, again, within those three buckets of issues that we work in, um, in terms of public policy, we've been focusing um, here in the United States on trying to change the policies that we need, things like paid sick days, which were so obviously missing as this country began to face this crisis and would have benefited women and their families, but also um, the ability to respond effectively to the pandemic. So as Congress here continues to navigate and negotiate over response packages, we're integrally involved in ensuring that um, the, the needs of women are, are recognized and met. We're also um, highlighting the experiences of women on the front lines in healthcare and other essential jobs. 
And finally, um, in, in the private sector, we've really tried to provide some very practical tools for companies, both as their workers are out, um, as their workers who are essential workers remain in the workforce, and as many employees return to work to make sure that they do so in a way um, that prioritizes equity and inclusion and diversity, which we know, again, is not only good for their workers, but it's also good for the companies. And let's t talk about the, the specific question of why COVID is uh, affecting women more broadly than men. Um, the U.S. has been in a recession since February, and I read where Nicole Mason, who's the president of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, has called this, if I can pronounce it correctly, a she-session, um, because it's been so much more difficult for women. Is it right to call it a she session? Um, uh, one of the statistics that came up was 55% um, uh, of those who lost jobs in April were women. So is that because women are typically in frontline jobs that uh, where, where they might be the first ones that were laid off because of closures of business because of COVID? Yes, all of those things. And I'll, I'll talk a little. I know my colleague Rakeen has also a lot to say on this topic as well. Um, you know, I think there's a number of factors. Um, you've touched on some of them. You know, the first are that women workers have literally been on the front lines of the fight against COVID. So if you look at the um, percentage of healthcare workers, 80% in the US of healthcare workers are women. 83% of workers who provide social assistance so that's things like childcare and emergency services, all of which have been shown to, all of which have always been essential by the way, but people are really recognizing and literally calling these essential workers. Um, you know, globally, um, according to the ILO, women make up over 70% of healthcare workers, including those who work in healthcare institutions. So again, this is a global phenomenon, not just a US phenomenon. And women are um, dominate a lot of the occupations um, that where they've been the most vulnerable to literally getting sick and spreading the disease to other people. So things like flight attendants, nurses, nurses, personal caregivers. So women have literally been at the front lines. They're also sadly been at the front lines of unemployment. Um, so if you, as you noted, this is the, um, the worst unemployment rate we've experienced globally in decades. Um, you know, the, the jobless totals range, the World Economic Forum has, you know, 30 million in the US, 1.76 million in Japan, you know, anywhere in between. Um, and, you know, in here in the United States, 60% of the jobs eliminated in the first wave of um, pandemic cuts were held by women. Um, and even as you've seen uh, unemployment, you know, slightly tick up, or excuse me, employment slightly tick up in May here, um, that's not the full story. So, you know, first of all, there's been a huge loss of jobs. Over 20 million jobs have been lost and only 2.5 million are back. Um, but even that job gain has largely benefited white uh, workers. And if you look at the black unemployment rate, it's uh, incredibly high, including in May as unemployment actually inched downward by 1.4 percentage points unemployment for black women actually ticked up by a small amount, but it still ticked up. Um, and again, you know, the phenomenon is global as well as domestic. In the informal, um, in, in the, uh, around the world, women disproportionately work in the informal sector, which has been very hard hit. So, you know, as you saw um, 
in Asia, women bore the brunt of widespread job cuts um, in industries like textile workers. Um, in Bangladesh, to take one example, more than a million garment workers um, have been laid off. 80% of those million are women. And you know the ILO uh, has warned that nearly 1.6 billion workers in the informal economy have experienced a sharp decline um, in working hours due to COVID-19, and you know that can really destroy livelihoods. That's um, that's the the difference between subsistence and not. And let's bring in Rakeen here because. Uh, I want to find out more about uh, your work in this area specifically. Yes, thank you so much, Bev, for having us. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and with the audience I cannot see, but I'm sure is fully engaged. Um, and I just wanted to add a little bit to what Jen has already said, and she's covered so much ground. Um, but I think it's important to reiterate that what we're seeing right now is not a new phenomenon, right? It's a reflection of long-standing inequalities that are baked into our system. Um, as you said, Bev, you know, of, of the 20.5 million people who lost their jobs in April, more than half of those were women. And the cuts started in sectors um, that disproportionately employ women and have historically done so. So sectors, sectors like leisure and hospitality, like retail, health, and education. And what I think about a lot is that all of this means that the workers who are going to have the hardest time bouncing back when we are in a recovery period um, are these, these workers who have always been vulnerable, right? Women workers, workers of color, people in very, very low paid jobs. Um, and I think it's also important to note that unemployment and the labor market, it's, it's an important part of the story, but it's only one part of the story. Um, we talk a lot about how many jobs, but we also need to think about what the quality of those jobs are. Do people have stability and security? Um, can they go to work and expect to have, you know, a, a stable schedule as, as they try to arrange childcare? You know, people are multifaceted beings and, um, and their well-being is not just dependent on their job. Um, and I think just again, to, to reinforce what Jen has already put out there, um, in this period now, as schools and daycares are closed, um, women are taking on a huge amount of unpaid care work. This has always been the case with definitely the dial has been turned up in recent weeks and months. Um, and also women of color comprise the vast majority of frontline workers, which means that they are taking on significant health risks just to stay financially afloat. So all of this, when we take a step back, um, means that in this pandemic moment, we have we have almost an opening. We have an opening to see these issues for what they are and, and what drives them. Um, and that means that we have an opportunity and a, and a responsibility to really center these most historically marginalized in our policymaking, to acknowledge that women's labor has long been undervalued and it's not just a, a new phenomenon. So um, I'm throwing that out there and hopefully that we'll get into some of the more policy specific conversations in the, um, going forward in this conversation. And before I bring Rachel in, I just want to follow up, Rakeen, um, because you raised the issue of the of the the underlying issues that are behind what we're seeing right now, uh, specifically um, sexism, racism, um, and that uh, you've said that COVID-19 just exacerbated um, these issues as they've come forward uh, in this situation. So what do what do we I guess, what do we as a collective country, government, you know, trying to address these issues, what can be done? Because those underlying issues, as you said, they've been there for a long time and they haven't gone away. They're not going away. But 
in this moment, what can be done to, to, to address them? I appreciate you asking that question. It is a massive question um, that probably requires another, we could talk about this for two days, right? Um, but, you know, especially right now, as we're seeing the COVID crisis play out, economic and health crises associated with that play out, the Black Lives Matter movement and social uprisings play out. Um, I think we are really seeing, truly seeing, the entrenched racism and sexism that have long held women back in the, in the U.S. And I'm going to focus this comments kind of on the U.S. because it is so salient right here, right now. Um, so we, I think a lot about institutionalized sexism, which is this idea that those who have historically held power designed a system that inherently holds women back. And so what results is a vicious cycle where women don't have access to the resources or the power to generate change to break that cycle. And that cycle is exacerbated for women who sit at the intersection of multiple oppressions, such as racism or ableism or xenophobia. Um, and if we really want to achieve true gender equity, it means we need to disrupt this cycle. And first, it means we need to understand the cycle. So just um, to give a really quick example where I think it really, this, this vicious cycle I'm talking about really shows up is thinking about um, childcare or caregiving more broadly. So caregiving, especially in the US, has its roots in the forced labor of enslaved black women. And that is a thread that we see continue today in our care workforce that continues to be predominantly comprised of black and immigrant women whose labor is still very undervalued and undercompensated. So what this means is that these historical roots mean that our society ends up thinking about childcare that sh as work that should be unpaid or underpaid, right? And that in turn leads to a lack of investment in public childcare policies which both keeps women at home to do a disproportionate amount of unpaid labor, but also pulls women back from holding the power that they need to advocate for the systemic solutions, to really you know, go forth and change the policies, change the practices. These narratives have become so ingrained that it's gendered and racialized starting points are, are basically invisible. So it almost seems like what is has always been and always will be, although that's not true, right? And so to get to your question, which is what do we even do about this? Um, we need to do so many things. We need to think more creatively about power, what it is and who it is held by. Um, we need to push for cultural change and a change in social norms that truly you know, values women and, and their work. We need to center those who have historically been left out of change, which are predominantly those who are at the intersection of multiple oppressions and historical oppressions. And we need to change policies and practices in the public sector and the private sector, government policy in companies to give women the tools that they need to thrive. And ultimately, it's not one thing that's going to fix racism and sexism in our society, right? It's, it's we need to pull on all of these threads all at once, which means that this is something that all of us are, are in the fight to do right now. Jen, before I come back to you, can I, well, let me come back to you and then Rachel, I'll loop you in. I wanted to just add one um, fairly specific, Rakeen is exactly right to point out sort of the breadth of the problem, the depth of the problem. And I wanted to just um, note one specific thing um, to, in response to your question of, you know, what can we do in this moment? Um, and I think one of the issues that, you know, Rakeen has described r really um, in, in, uh, in its beautiful, in its complete nuance um, is the notion of unpaid and, and paid caregiving. Um, you know, on the on the paid caregiving side, we are um, unprepared, at least in this country, um, to uh, provide the paid child care that people need, women need to be able to get back to work. 
And on the unpaid side, you know, as you've heard, women bear um, a disproportionate burden of that care at home um, before COVID and even more so now. And this is a place where the United States can really learn from other countries because we are really one of, we are one of only two countries in the world that have no paid family care. Um, and as we've seen this, um, this epidemic unfold, while it has been obviously economic, economically devastating around the world, we've been particularly unprepared. Because as I said at the outset, we don't have paid sick days. So people, many people who should have been staying home, who needed to stay home for their own care, to, to care for their families, but also for public benefit, were unable to do so. We don't have um, paid family and medical leave. And you know, only 19, as a result of it not being a national uh, po public policy, only 19% of Americans have access to it. Um, and you know, what we've seen in recent days is how essential those policies are. So I think one really important step, and as I said, one place where we can learn from other countries. I mean, you've seen countries step up, even the ones that have good childcare systems have added to those childcare, um, to, to the, the care systems that are in place. Um, so I think you know that's a that's a good tangible place to start. And you brought up policy, and I want to bring in Rachel uh, on this on this issue because um, there were a lot of lessons when we had the Ebola crisis a few years ago uh, about how to handle how not to handle a pandemic like COVID nineteen. Uh, but one of the major uh, lessons was using a gender lens. In creating policy and I know this is an area where you spend a lot of time researching writing and thinking so um, how can we bring in that gender lens on creating policies that will address issues like child care like health care um, as they specifically relate to women Beth, thank you for that question for hosting this important conversation it's a pleasure to join you and my fellow co-panelists and i'm grateful to city as well for sponsoring this talk i think when rakeem said earlier that there is an opportunity that is born out of this crisis that that's exactly right and there's also a risk uh, the opportunity is to address some of the structural barriers that you've heard Jen and Rakeem talk about that are endemic, not only here in the United States, but in countless countries around the world, whether it's pay inequality, the concentration of women in low wage work, the disproportionate burden of unpaid <laughs> women, uh, the harassment and discrimination that women too often face in the workforce. All of those structural barriers undermine not only women's economic participation, but also economic growth. And so in a moment where we are facing a national and global economic crisis, we have the opportunity to address some of these structural barriers that predate this crisis, but certainly serve to exacerbate it. And I think there's also a significant risk that if we fail to address these structural barriers that have really been laid bare by this crisis and this moment, uh, that we will undermine the recovery. I know that all of us so desperately want to see economically from a health perspective and otherwise. And there are a number of countries where we have seen leaders elevate the importance of gender equality to achieving important national and international goals like economic prosperity and stability. Back in 2014, the then Foreign Minister of Sweden, Margot Wallström, introduced the concept of feminist 
foreign policy, and that was in the country of Sweden, where there was also a domestic focus on gender equality. And the recognition was between the link uh, that we see uh, with respect to women's status in society and women's ability to participate economically, politically, and socially, and strong, important outcomes that we see in terms of economic growth and stability. And since 2014, there have been a number of other countries that have explicitly adopted this notion of incorporating gender equality into economic security and foreign policy strategy. We've seen uh, the Mexican government most recently adopt that approach, uh, as well as the French government and the Canadian government. And I think there's a lot for the United States government to learn from the approaches that we've seen put into place in those countries. Let me follow up on what other countries are, are doing um, in terms of their focus on a, a gender lens. I, I know that uh, the term feminist foreign policy and that has gotten a lot of uh, attention, um, but uh, are there other lessons that, that the United States should be paying attention to in terms of specifically uh, looking for ways to help women recover um, once this crisis ends, whenever that time is, um, but at some point there, there will be an end, or at least I think we're all hoping there will be an end. But what are some of the, the gender lens focused policies that we should be thinking about um, to help women bounce back? Well, one issue that has really risen to the fore and ought to get more attention, I think, from government and from workplaces is the issue of gender-based violence. So, you know, we certainly know that this pandemic has forced millions uh, to work remotely, essentially turning their home living spaces into offices. Uh, but while staying at home may protect employees from contracting coronavirus, uh, it leaves many unprotected from the scourge of domestic violence. So we've seen data from a range of countries showing a disturbing increase in gender-based violence in France, for example, we saw reports of domestic violence increase 30% after the country's lockdown took effect in March. Uh, Argentina saw a 25% increase. We saw similar increases in Cyprus, Singapore, uh, reports from Canada, Germany, Spain, uh, UK, and of course, here in the United States, all reporting increase in cases of domestic violence and also an increase in demand for emergency shelter. Um, so why are we seeing this dramatic rise? Uh, certainly the growth in the number of sick and unemployed people coupled with rising levels of anxiety, stress and financial pressure uh, contributes to the growing number of cases of domestic abuse. Um, and at the same time as we see this dramatic rise, many crisis centers and social service providers have been uh, unable or overwhelmed uh, by the, the demand and therefore uh, unable to address the critical needs that we've seen. I do think it's important to note uh, that the epidemic of violence against women certainly long predates this moment with an estimated one in three women subject to physical or sexual violence in their lifetimes. And we know that of the 87,000 or so women who are killed uh, every year, that about half are estimated to be killed by intimate partners or family members. So while there's a public message that being at home is the place to be in order to stay safe, uh, for too many women, that's not the case. Uh, 
So what do we what do we do about that? I think from a policy perspective, first and foremost, there are about 35 countries that still lack laws to uh, prohibit or criminalize domestic violence, according to the World Bank. That's an important and obvious starting point. Governments can certainly devote more resources to crisis hotlines, to shelters, to the provision of social services, uh, to help increase awareness so that women know what their rights are. But I think importantly, workplaces also have a responsibility to do more, to get involved, recognizing that as work takes place at home, that it's critical for the private sector to think about addressing this as an issue that relates not only to human rights, but to economic productivity. And let me follow up. You mentioned something about uh, the uh, an issue that has come to the forefront during this pandemic, and that is uh, domestic abuse and uh, sexual harassment. That hasn't gone away because we're in a, in a pandemic. Um, can you talk about what can be done to address those specific issues as uh, the economy allows for people to begin returning to work? Absolutely. You know, I think an important policy development that uh, has been overlooked, perhaps, by uh, all of the news that we uh, certainly read every day in this moment um, is the groundbreaking adoption of a new convention at the International Labor Organization, Convention 190, uh, on violence and harassment in the workplace. This is the, the first time that we've seen uh, member governments of the ILO, worker representatives and employers all come together uh, to vote for stronger protections against workplace sexual harassment and violence, which would certainly incorporate some of the situations that I just described with respect to women in particular are subject to violence while they're working from home. So this treaty uh, obligates governments to prohibit and monitor workplace violence and harassment, to take appropriate measures to prevent it, uh, and importantly, provide victims access to remedies and protections. Um, this is the broadest convention of its kind. It addresses not only uh, who we typically think of as employees in an office, but also employees working from home, interns, contractors, volunteers, job seekers, and the convention recognizes that work-related harassment can, and violence can take place outside of conventional offices, so certainly incorporating and encompassing the situation where many workers find themselves today. So how does this convention get implemented? Well, first, it will enter force uh, only after ratification by two member states. Uh, we know that Argentina, Finland, and Spain have all formally committed to ratification uh, and that Uruguay has already taken that important step. Um, in the United States, ratification is the precondition for implementing this convention and importantly for employees to have access to the convention as a form of protection against violence and harassment in the workplace. And if the United States takes the step of ratifying this treaty, which importantly the U.S. government supported uh, during its adoption at the ILO, it would have effects both domestically and globally. So from a domestic perspective, it would mean that policies and workplace regulations that relate to violence and harassment uh, would need to be strengthened in areas where they fall short of what this new international standard prescribes. So that means that violence and harassment taking place in home offices would be encompassed 
uh, certainly by the convention, and if the U.S. ratified, uh, then we would expect to see the federal government and state governments make changes to their laws to broaden those protections. Uh, we also would see a global effect if the U.S. ratified this treaty because it would send such a strong message when it comes to protecting labor rights and working through trade agreements as to what we consider to be the baseline for safe and dignified work. And how likely is it that the U.S. is going to ratify this treaty as a, as a forward step? I think that is a great question. Historically, we have seen resistance to ratification of international treaties generally, and uh, specifically that relate to the rights of women. We still are one of just nine countries in the world that have not ratified the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. Um, but we also have uh, the opportunity to raise our voices and press for ratification, uh, particularly in, in the months and years ahead. A question to throw out to the entire panel, so whichever one of you wants to tackle it, uh, uh, please hop in. Uh, one thing that has been very, very noticeable uh, regarding women and the COVID-19 pandemic is that countries led by women have typically handled this pandemic much better than countries uh, headed by men. And I'm thinking specifically here of Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand, uh, Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, the president of Finland and uh, the leader of Taiwan, all women and all of those countries have had uh, better outcomes uh, than some other countries. Why is that? This is a fascinating question uh, that I'm glad to speak to at the, the Council on Foreign Relations where I lead the Women in Foreign Policy Program. We have created a women's power index where we evaluate countries based on their progress in electing and promoting women's leaders and also evaluate the difference it makes to have women in power. And what we're seeing is that it does in fact make a difference. So I want to caution and caveat that we have a relatively small sample size to draw from. Uh, we currently have 19 women who are heads of state or government around the world. That's out of 193 countries. Um, so you can hear from those statistics that women are dramatically underrepresented as leaders of nations around the world. And that's a statistically small group. But with that caveat, some of the evidence and the analysis that we've seen suggests that female-led countries in this pandemic have fared better in terms of the absolute number of COVID-19 cases and deaths, uh, with male-led countries having almost double the number of deaths as female ones. So why is that? Uh, there are a few uh, issues that have risen to the fore as analysts have studied this. Uh, the first is that female-led countries were countries in which lockdowns went into place much earlier as compared to male-led countries, um, which helped those countries become more effective at flattening the epidemic curve, and that quick implementation of social distancing plans uh, also were incredibly important. Uh, and we've seen those two phenomena in, in several countries led by women, including Germany, Iceland, Finland, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, also Hong Kong. Uh, but there are also some common traits 
that we've seen among many of the leaders of these nations that have had a strong response to COVID-19, uh, many of whom have characteristics that are traditionally seen as quote unquote feminine uh, and are often not associated with what we think of when we think of leaders. Um, and I'll just list out a few of those. The first is solidarity and compassion. We saw women leaders uh, promoting solidarity in the face of this challenge and compassion for those uh, who fell ill as opposed to focusing on finding blame uh, for the cause of the crisis. Uh, cooperation and openness. We've seen that women leaders uh, in this crisis and in others uh, have been willing to listen to a range of different voices, thereby limiting the risk of so-called groupthink. Um, risk aversion. Interestingly, there's a, a, um, a tendency to think of women as risk averse. But what the research shows is not that women are risk averse, but that they are more risk averse when it comes to human life uh, than they were recently in this crisis with respect to economic outcomes. So because women leaders tended to be more risk averse in terms of health and protection of human lives, um, we saw a really strong response. And we also saw that the male leaders on average were more likely to be risk averse when it came to the question of economic health. Interestingly, the places where women took uh, action that was more risk averse in the area of human life may ultimately be the nations in which the economy will reopen sooner. Uh, so, you know, this is an ongoing situation that we'll certainly con continue to study. But I think the bottom line here is that the research we have not only from this crisis, but from the last 25 years where we've seen the rate of female leadership increase, suggests that women's leadership does make a difference, not necessarily that it's better, but that it, we see improved outcomes when we have a diversity of information and uh, characteristics at the table as opposed to a monolithic group. Important moment maybe to point out um, as Rachel's talking about, you know, the importance of women's leadership that we are um, celebrating this year, the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Conference on Women. And what we've seen as you analyze trends where we've made progress and where there's a lot more progress to uh, to go as we think about COVID and as we think more broadly about, you know, the the march towards gender equality. Um, you know, interestingly, we've seen progress across the board, obviously not there entirely and not there for everyone, really important to point out, but on issues like health and education, sort of the human capital, um, we have seen tremendous progress really around the world. But where we really see progress still lagging is on economic and political participation. Again, the story's way more nuanced, obviously, than that, but I think it's a, a good moment to point out that in as we're seeing the importance of women's leadership, both in the economic sector and in the political sphere, that um, that it's a good time to recommit ourselves um, to, uh, to persist in making um, progress in those areas. I couldn't agree more, Jen and Rachel, and I think it's important to recognize the power of women's leadership. You know, I used to work at the Roosevelt Institute, so to put that hat on for a second, we, we say often that who writes the rules matters and who is at the table matters for how issues are framed um, and how issues are, 
are taken up. Um, I think a really good example of this in the US context is the issue of black maternal mortality. Um, black women are two and a half times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Um, and this is not an issue that only affects low-income black women, but you know, Beyonce, Serena Williams, really high profile wealthy women with good healthcare have well-publicized experiences of this issue. Um, and without you know, black women at the table ensuring that structural barriers that they face are addressed, we wouldn't be able to combat them. So just to give a quick example, it was only last year that black women in the Congress founded the Black Maternal Health Caucus to address black maternal health mortality, mortality um, through policy solutions. And so putting black women in charge not only put the issue on the table, it reframed the issue to incorporate and directly challenge the racism and sexism that no one policy solution will ever be able to address. And I think it's it really speaks to how important um, women's leadership is as a starting point in breaking that vicious cycle we, we started this conversation with, right? Because it's not just women leaders who are going to be able to make wholesale change, but it also requires rethinking where power is held and making sure that single moms, Black and Latinx women, other women of color who have always been working, have always been in need of solutions, have the voice and power to advocate for their, their issues and the issues that um, that have long been suppressed because of the way our society is set up. If I could just jump in and return to uh, where Jen started in the beginning of the conversation, recognizing that many of the challenges that we see in the workplace derive from the power imbalance between men and women, as well as power imbalances uh, across a range of other factors. And note that we actually have a target to shoot for in terms of increasing women's leadership and representation because the social tells us that when women make up a critical mass of about 30 percent of let's say a legislature a boardroom uh, think of other other areas where leadership is important they are more likely to challenge established conventions and we start to see differences in policy agendas so we see that for example the uh, tendency towards bipartisanship increases when women are at the table. And certainly when women are at the table at that critical threshold of 30% or more, uh, that female lawmakers are more likely to advocate for policies that advance equality and social welfare, education and health. And certainly when it comes to health, that corresponds with what we've seen in this most recent crisis. Uh, and we also see that women's proportionality in representation promotes stability, that when women's parliamentary representation increases, a country is almost five times less likely to respond to crises with violence. And so, you know, while addressing the full constellation of barriers is certainly a big task, as Rakine rightly notes, um, we do have a sense of kind of where we're seeking to go to see some of these changes realized. And that 30% threshold is a great starting point. To follow up on the on the power imbalance, we've talked all about how COVID is disproportionately impacting women. So what's the role for men in helping to alleviate the power imbalance and address the issues that uh, are systemic that have been raised in this conversation? This is Jen. I, I can jump in um, by saying that I, I think, obviously, that's a another big question where we could discuss for days. Um, I think one um, important thing to point out, you know, I, I actually started working on these issues um, 
a very long time ago um, during Clinton administration when I was working for the then First Lady, Hillary Clinton, and I always noted that people referred to these issues that we worked on, so things like pay equity. Um, at that point, it was family and medical leave, um, uh, healthcare for women, a, a range of issues that people referred to as women's issues, and we and she referred to as economic issues. And I think that's the first important thing to keep in mind. The role for men um, and for women and for whoever has the ability to make decisions, whether that's in the workplace or through um, you know, national assemblies or um, in their own homes, um, needs to consider that these are women's issues and they deeply affect women, um, but there are also issues that are important for the economy. There are issues that are important for the entire community and sort of approaching them as in that way as not a thing you do for women. I, I, I sometimes bristle even at the notion of the, um, the concept of empowering women because you know to return to our conversation about the power imbalance power is not something that i think needs to be given to women right women have it um and and you know that's why we um in our uh in our vision for times up we talk about power and dignity together because power doesn't always mean people at the top of their career people at the top of the income scale it means the power to act for yourself in your own life and have that agency so i think sort of acknowledging that honoring that and seeing these this set of issues as important for everybody um, is, is one step in the right direction. I would jump in just to add that we have such strong evidence to support what Jen just outlined, that this is not just a moral issue, an issue of justice, a human rights issue. Uh, we, the evidence really shows that this is an economic imperative, it's a strategic imperative, and that men and women alike uh, should care about it as a result. Just take the economic effects of the structural barriers that women face in the workplace. Uh, the McKinsey Global Institute estimated that between 12 and $28 trillion of global GDP could be gained simply by closing the gaps between men and women in the labor force. So think about that at a time when we are facing a severe economic challenge. The notion that we need to address these structural barriers is not just a nice thing to do. It's not just the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do if we're going to close not only those gaps, but realize the economic potential of 50% of the world's population. Looking ahead, uh, what concerns you about the next wave of COVID-19 as it relates to women in the workforce and women in um, various economic situations? Some folks say that we're still in the first wave. We've just had a, a spike, um, but there are concerns that later in the year there will be another wave of, of this pandemic to hit. Uh, are there specific uh, uh, issues, concerns that you have that are related to women since women have been disproportionately impacted already in this, in this pandemic? I mean, childcare is huge. I, we, we still have, you know, schools and childcare centers are still largely closed. Um, and we are starting to be asked to go back to work. Um, and parents are in a bind, right? How do you go back to work for to provide for your family, to provide for yourself when you don't have childcare? And I think 
Um, that is one massive issue. And just more broadly, I think we're seeing um, women in particular being forced to make trade-offs um, between going back to work, risking their health, and providing economic stability for um, themselves and their families. And these are trade-offs that we have to think about in our policy responses, because otherwise what's, we're gonna end up recreating the same systems that have always you know, had women fall through the cracks. And this is um, certainly true, more true than ever for women who are in low paid jobs, women who are in hourly jobs or temp jobs, um, and, and, and women of color um, who are disproportionately represented in some of those less, uh, in, in some of those more precarious jobs and work. And I would just add to that, and, and I'm actually repeating things that Rakeen have taught me, um, but you know, if you think about um, low paid women workers in particular, they have very little in the way of savings to start with. So even as we see people beginning to go back to work, first you need to pay attention to who is going back to work and then to the quality of the jobs they're going back to. But the other thing is, it's harder to recover, you know, to, to return to your, your use of the word she session, right? It's who's losing the jobs, what kind of jobs they're losing, but also what do they have by way of sort of a cushion? Um, and for so many women workers, particularly the, the lowest paid, um, it's much harder for them to weather these economic shocks. Um, and I think that's what we'll be looking for again in this next wave. And we have a couple of questions from the audience that I want to get in here. Uh, first from Jessica Robinson, the International Fund for Agricultural Development. How can women be put into or voted into leadership roles when much of the society sees women as inferior? And how can women, whether it's women of color, disabled women, transgender women, create leadership roles and make a difference without depending on, um, on, on society to you know, allow them to be in these positions? I would happy to address that. I think that we've actually seen uh, over the last four years in particular, but even going back uh, further than that, a dramatic increase in the number of women who have been willing to step forward and run for office, uh, not only in the United States, but in countries around the world, the staggering increases, sometimes upwards of 200% increase in women's candidacies. And countries uh, outside of the US and Western Europe, we've seen this in uh, South Asia, we've seen this in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, the number of women who are in the face often of dangerous conditions uh, and sometimes violent oppression the number of women who have been willing to step into the public sphere and put themselves forward for leadership positions is really uh, staggering. And I recently wrote a piece about this in Foreign Affairs that recognizes that we have seen, because of that increase in candidacies, a rise in women's political participation, not only at the head of state level, but at the parliamentary level. Uh, so I think the first step is to create support for those women. Uh, and importantly, not only have we seen an increase in the number of women elected, but we've seen an increase in the diversity of that group of women. That certainly was true here in our own Congress in the last election, where we saw the number of women in co of color elected dramatically rise. But we saw that, for example, in Brazil. Uh, we saw a record number of Afro-Brazilian women elected to both federal and local office there. 
Uh, so that's just one of many examples. I think that more support for the organizations that uh, that train uh, women to step into those leadership positions and that actually support the mechanics of running for office, which can be even more challenging for women uh, in societies around the world, that's an important and critical first step. And I think there's a part of this, it's a, a bit of a virtuous, I'm going to go with the word virtuous cycle, which is that um, as more women are in leadership positions, people see that you can be in leadership positions. So there's a sort of norm and culture shift that accompanies the, inc the actual increase that we've seen. Um, and I also think that the actual increase we've seen will um, positively affect those norms and sort of um, social pressures and social cultural um, factors. Um, but the culture change thing piece, I think it's really important to um, to keep in mind while everything Rachel said is true. And I love that optimistic view, but the culture change piece and the sort of inherent biases um, to seeing women in office and in positions of, of uh, leadership, I think even in the private sector, are, are it's a long and hard, hard road. That is exactly right. And I also think that exactly as Jen suggested that seeing women in those positions really does make a difference. There's a, a study that shows that a woman head of state not only changes the aspirations that girls have in that country, but it importantly changes the aspirations that fathers have for their daughters. Uh, so the message that's sent that you can really be what you can see, um, and certainly the reverse is true, uh, is a really powerful one in terms of cultural change. And just to add a note of optimism, and I'm not a particularly optimistic person often, um, I think we are in the midst of incredible, incredible generational like cultural change. Um, I think we're seeing it in all sorts of ways and in, in the same ways that we've talked about how, you know, racism and, and sexism are intertwined and in ways that are difficult to detangle. I think we are detangling it right now. So I, I do have some optimism that we are going to see new, fresh leaders um, with all of their identities coming forward in the coming years. And um, for anyone who is out there who's thinking of running for office, you should do so because it's, studies show that women have to be told to run for office more often than, than men do. So here's another voice telling you to run for office. Sorry, one more point on that before we let you uh, go to the next question. You know, I also think the rise of civil society in, in the United States and around the world has been a really important part of that and will continue to be. I mean, to return to Beijing for the moment, you know, there was a, a, a conference of 189 countries. There was also a thousand um, advocates from civil society not far down the road. And though those advocates meeting in Beijing um, really drove forward the agenda and really, I think, had a big part in putting together that platform for action, that pressure that they created. And that has exploded because of social media, because of the growth of movements around the world. Um, I'm going to echo what both Rakeen and Rachel said, which is that we are at this like cusp moment. You know, we saw it with Me Too. I think we're seeing it with race in a way right now in the United States. You know, a real change in sort of the, the push for change. And on that note, Jen, you get the last word. We've uh, reached our end of our event, and I want to thank Jennifer Klein, Rachel Vogelstein, Rakeem Maboud uh, for joining me today for this absolutely wonderful conversation. Thanks to all of you for being with us here online, and we will see you next time. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.